Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Finally! She's right this way, Dr. Humphreys. Mrs. Stanford! Hang on! Oh my! I've got no control over my body. It's like it's uh, attacking me. Ah. Stay calm, Mrs. Stanford. Bertha, how did this happen? Mrs. Stanford was having digestive troubles. She just wanted a bicarbonate of soda before bed and- I'm sure it's nothing more than indigestion. Bertha, help me get her up off the floor. Prop her up against the bed. You don't understand. It wasn't what I ate. Uh, I think it was... Uh... It's all right, Mrs. Stanford. You don't have to speak. I think I've been poisoned again. On the night of February 28th, 1905, Jane Stanford's screams echoed throughout the Moana Hotel in Honolulu, Hawaii. When Dr. Francis Howard Humphreys arrived that evening, the 76-year-old co-founder of Stanford University was convulsing with violent spasms on the floor. By 11.30 p.m., Jane Stanford was dead. Her shouts of pain made headlines across the world in the days to come, but Jane Stanford's poisoner was never found because someone put an end to the murder investigation before it even began. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Jane Stanford, founder of Stanford University and wealthy wife of a California governor, whose murder was mysteriously covered up in 1905. This week, we'll examine the events leading up to her suspicious death. Next week, we'll uncover who may have been responsible for it. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. 
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Jane Elizabeth Lathrop was born on August 25, 1828, to a well-to-do family in Albany, New York. Her father, Dyer Lathrop, was a notably successful merchant and political progressive known for funding women-led business ventures, such as the Albany Female Hospital. He also encouraged Jane to get an education, and she attended the Albany Academy for Girls, one of the oldest girls' day schools in the country. When she was in her early 20s, Jane's parents set her up with a young man from another prominent New York family. His name was Leland Stanford. It's no surprise that Jane and Leland's parents felt that they were a perfect match. Leland was a successful lawyer living in the frontier town of Port Washington, Wisconsin, and his budding career would soon make him one of the most powerful men in the world. Jane and Leland met during one of Leland's trips back to Albany. They instantly gravitated towards each other. Jane was attracted to Leland's adventurous spirit. Leland loved Jane's free-thinking mentality. And so, on September 30, 1850, the 22-year-old Jane Lathrop married Leland and became Jane Stanford. Their honeymoon phase was short-lived. Soon after the wedding, the couple had to return to Wisconsin where Leland's practice was. At first, Jane had her doubts about moving with him. I just don't know, Leland. What's there not to know? You've always wanted to see what life was like in the country. It's not about what I want, it's about who I owe. Are you in some kind of debt I don't know about? It's not that. It's my family. If I leave now, who will take care of my father? He's getting older, you know. We all are, Jane. That's exactly my point. You're right about that. And I would love to see this town you've talked so much about. Wait, is that a yes? Well, yes, it's a yes. Cheers. The newlyweds left for Wisconsin almost immediately. They arrived in Port Washington in late 1850, only a few months after their wedding day. Unfortunately, life in the Midwest proved difficult. Jane may have enjoyed spending time with Leland, but there wasn't that much to spend. Leland worked constantly at his law firm, and Jane struggled to make friends in his absence. All of that would change two years later in 1852, when Leland's law business went up in flames, literally. The Port Washington Fire of 1852 left half of the town in shambles. Leland's law library was burned to the ground. Everything the 28-year-old had worked so hard to create was gone in the blink of an eye. To make matters worse, Jane had just received bad news from back home. Her father had fallen ill. 
She wanted to go back to tend to her father, but Leland felt obligated to stay in Wisconsin and try to rebuild what he'd lost. So Jane left without him. The Stanfords would have to rely on letters and short visits, at least for a little while. But Jane's father struggled to recover, and her short trip soon turned into three years away. The longer Jane stayed in Albany without Leland, the more gossip spread around town about their separation. Connie, did you hear about the Stanfords? Oh my, isn't it just absolutely juicy? I heard they split because Leland was having an affair. I heard that he had a baby out of wedlock with a frontier gal, and he felt so much shame about it, he burned down his entire empire. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hello Jane, we were just uh, working on our sewing. Excuse me, ladies. <laughs> Meanwhile, after the fire, Leland had troubles of his own. All his efforts to rebuild the Stanford's place in Port Washington had failed. He decided to join his brothers, who had gone to chase the gold rush out west. And so, with no family or opportunities left in Wisconsin, a despondent Leland Stanford moved to California. In 1855, Jane's father finally succumbed to his illness. Leland traveled out to join her for the funeral. In honor of the philanthropist and businessman, Jane built her father the largest monument in Albany Rural Cemetery. The 30-foot hunk of stone also became the Stanford's parting gift to the city. Leland's brothers had found success in California. The gold rush was booming, and the call of adventure tugged at Leland and Jane. With nothing holding Jane in Albany anymore, the couple left the comfy Northeast once and for all and headed west. To Sacramento, California to be exact. But by the time they arrived in 1856, the gold rush had passed its breaking point. Over 300,000 people had descended on the state in search of a quick fortune, and had scooped up almost every ounce of gold. But that didn't stop more hopeful prospectors from showing up in California each day. Leland took one look at the crowded city and saw an opportunity far more lucrative than gold. Everyone who showed up in California needed to trade. And it just so happened that Leland Stanford was an expert at making that happen. In just a few short years, Leland built himself a booming mercantile business. By the late 1850s, he became one of the richest men in the state. As one of the richest men in California, he was one of the richest men in the world. Then in 1861, Jane and Leland Stanford made the leap from rich socialites to California legends. That year, Leland Stanford decided to run for governor. The 37-year-old had already become a prominent figure in California's Republican Party, and he won the gubernatorial race by a landslide. His ambitions didn't end at politics, though. Leland had recently stumbled onto something large, something cross-continental. Short-line railroads had sprung up across the country during the previous few decades, beginning with a train from Baltimore to Ohio in 1827. A few companies had unified railroads around the Northeast, but Leland's plan was almost unheard of. 
He wanted to build a railroad across the entire country. While Leland was exorbitantly wealthy, it was going to take more than riches than any one man could provide to accomplish such a feat. And so, Governor Stanford put together an elite group known as the Big Four. First was Collis Potter Huntington, the banker, a California merchant who hailed from Connecticut. Just like Stanford, Huntington had followed the western glint of gold all the way to Sacramento. Next was Mark Hopkins, a bookkeeper from New York. Hopkins made his living selling supplies and groceries to the influx of gold rush fortune seekers. Then there was Charles Crocker, the muscle of the group. Crocker used the money he made from owning a general store to join the Big Four and was put in charge of construction. With Leland as the mastermind, anything was possible for these wealthy elites. Well, boys, I hereby call this meeting of the Big Four into session. Hear, hear! So, Leland, what's the plan? We may be rich, but no one is rich enough to build a railroad across the whole United States. Well, that is the thing. Our railroad doesn't have to go across the entire country. Just long enough to hit halfway. Halfway? Our railroad will just drop people off in no man's land? No, no, no. I've already worked it out with the other railroad companies. They'll meet us in the middle, and we can create the first transcontinental railroad by only doing half the work. What's more, the Pacific Railway Act means we'll get the land grants and money to finish our part of the deal. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Woo! That wasn't the only way Leland had figured out to save money. He also preyed on Chinese immigrants to do the large bulk of the railroad construction. Between 1863 and 1869, around 20,000 railway workers were underpaid Chinese immigrants. Leland's scheme worked, and he and his business partners began to develop a reputation. The general public called them knobs, a term for wealthy and prominent men. If you live in San Francisco, you might recognize the term. The neighborhood where they would eventually build their mansions after leaving Sacramento came to be known as Knob Hill. By 1868, Jane and Leland Stanford were the it couple of California. To an outsider, they had everything, a fortune, a mansion, and an entire state at their beck and call. But Jane Stanford wanted a family. Despite years of trying, it seemed it might never happen for the aging couple. Jane was on the brink of 40, and her biological clock was ticking. Some things, though, just take time. Leland, I have to talk to you about something. What's the matter? I'm not feeling well. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. I, I vomited this morning. My appetite is going crazy. My body is all out of sync. Oh, God. We'll go to the doctor at once. No, Leland. I think I'm pregnant. <gasps> this was one of the happiest days for the Stanford family. But it soon led to one of the saddest chapters of Jane and Leland's lives. Coming up, we'll hear about the great tragedy of the Stanfords and the events that led up to Jane's mysterious death. 
Hi, listeners. It's Carter. If you're looking for more extraordinary stories, the new Spotify original from Parcast explores daring achievements, death-defying stunts, and exploits that didn't quite make it into the history books. It's called Incredible Feats, and it's a daily show hosted by comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck. Every weekday, Dan shares the surprising details behind people's bravest, strangest, most boundary-pushing moments. Like when Dan Carnassus ran 350 miles without stopping. Or when Julianne Kopka survived 11 days alone in a rainforest when she was just 17 years old. Or when Felix Baumgartner broke the sound barrier while skydiving from the edge of space. You'll hear wildly unexpected stories about everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats aims to amaze, so don't miss out. New episodes air Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. In 1868, a new joy appeared in the Stanford, Sacramento, California household. Jane and Leland had been married and childless for 18 years, but it seemed their dream of offspring was about to be answered. Jane was pregnant. Jane, at 39 years old, was unusually old to be having her first child. It's rumored that she had already had a previous miscarriage, and the risk of another seemed high. There were plenty of other potential issues for pregnant women at her age, too, especially in the 1860s. But all their worries turned out to be nothing. On May 14, 1868, Leland Stanford, Jr. first opened his eyes to the world. To Jane and Leland, he was a miracle. It was the most beautiful thing I've seen in my entire life. What are you doing? Are you kneeling? I'm praying. I've never seen you on your knees before. I... I wanted to thank God for protecting you and for giving me such a beautiful boy. (laughs) We finally have our family, Leland. The Stanfords were absolutely giddy. They invited Sacramento's finest over to their house to celebrate with a dinner party. Once all of the guests took their seat, the first dish was brought to the table, a large silver platter with a cover. Leland Sr. rose to his feet and announced there was someone he'd like to introduce. The waiter removed the silver cover to reveal Leland Jr. lying on a bed of lettuce. The party erupted in giddy laughter and applause. Governor Stanford picked up Leland Jr. and showed him to each and every dinner guest the unmistakable twinkle of a father's pride in his eyes. 
1874, the Stanfords moved to San Francisco, where Leland Jr. would spend his early years. Leland Jr. was the son of one of the richest couples in the world. His daily life was understandably influenced by the glamour of wealth. He was waited on by servants, his room cleaned by maids. Nevertheless, Jane and Leland Sr. grew up in more modest circumstances and wanted to instill solid values in their son. By all accounts, those values were well received. Leland Jr. was smart and a charming young boy. He took special interest in art and mechanics and was encouraged to express his thoughts and ideas in whatever ways he wanted. There are letters in the Stanford archives that show a budding friendship between 10-year-old Leland Jr. and a handicapped neighborhood friend named Wylas. These letters show the kind of fun-loving, kind spirit that Leland Jr. was. One letter tells the story of a special trip to the mountains. Leland Jr. wrote, We had a delightful trip to the Sierra Nevadas, snowballing to our heart's content. Our fingers were numb for half an hour afterwards. The Stanfords were great believers in the educational value of travel. Perhaps it was their own travels that formed their beliefs, or maybe it was just seeing the natural curiosity in Leland Jr. that made them want to set sail for Europe. Leland Jr.'s first grand tour of Europe came in 1880 at 12 years old. His tutor, Herbert Nash, accompanied the family everywhere they went. That boy is something special. His curiosity is ferocious, if not a little exhausting. I mean, he can't see macaroni made without having an explanation of the whole process. Or glass blown without learning all the details of the business, the wages paid to the workmen, the hours of labor. Did I mention it's exhausting? In order to have more time with her son, Jane hired a personal secretary, Bertha Berner, to help her juggle her responsibilities. Bertha and Jane had a very special relationship, almost from the beginning. What started as an employer and employee dynamic quickly evolved into something warmer. Bertha came from a very different background than Jane. Her parents emigrated from Germany and settled in Wisconsin. Bertha took off for California the first chance she could, where she found her way to the Stanfords. Despite their differences, there was no one closer to Jane than Bertha. She even came along on the Stanfords' family trips. Her help was particularly important as Jane and Leland Sr. got older and their health began to decline. Eventually, the pair were getting too old to keep up with their old, adventurous ways. In 1883, the Stanfords took what would become their last family trip. What started as a Christmas trip in Vienna turned into a tragedy that would end in Italy. By January of 1884, the family had reached Athens, Greece, which was covered in snow. After a particularly chilly night, Jane and 15-year-old Leland Jr. both fell ill. Jane was more at risk since she was older and in worse health, so when she recovered before her son, the family knew that something was seriously wrong. Leland Jr. wasn't just sick. He had contracted typhoid, and despite his parents' best efforts with medical professionals from Rome, Leland Stanford Jr. passed away in an Italian hospital on March 13, 1884. Upon their return to California, the Stanfords were heartbroken. Their only son, the light of their lives, was dead, 
and Jane was inconsolable. Sleepless nights and crying fits filled much of her next year. Desperate times for the Stanford family quickly gave way to desperate measures. Jane and Leland turned to a growing trend within certain circles of America's most wealthy during the late 19th century, spiritualism. Spiritualists believe that just beyond our physical world is another world where it's possible to converse with the deceased. Spiritualism came to America in the early 1840s and quickly caught on in 19th century high society. Seances, performed by spirit mediums, became a meeting ground for America's highest class. Jane and Leland Stanford once found themselves at a seance with former President Ulysses S. Grant. Gather round, everyone. Gather round. It's time to begin our communication with the netherworld. This is really happening. My heart is pounding. I need another drink. Please, President Grant, sit down. Now, everyone clasp hands and close your eyes. You must be perfectly focused for this to work. Mrs. Drake, please. My husband and I would like to contact our son, Leland Jr. So be it. I call on spirits who have left this world and gone to the next. Find me the family member the Stanford's search for, the curious boy whose soul was lost. Come to me in this room and speak to your parents. Return to the living if only for a brief moment and use your spiritual guidance to give them peace. Did you hear that? Yes, I heard it. I didn't hear anything. Can we do it again? Perhaps it was a private message, only for his parents. These spiritualist practices gave Jane and Leland some much-needed peace of mind during troubling times. The loss of a child can break you or it can make you stronger than ever. For the Stanfords, it did both. While Jane and Leland's dream of having more biological children was over, their desire for a family remained. After months of grieving, and despite Leland's declining health, the Stanfords were ready to try again. During a private conversation, Leland explained his plan to Jane. We don't need to have a biological family to make a difference in people's lives. We can have a different kind of family. The children of California shall be our children. And so, by the end of 1884, Leland and Jane had decided to found Leland Stanford Junior University, better known as Stanford. This university would be a beacon of education for scientists and artists alike, curated for curious and kind minds, much like their late sons. The university would aim to do two things as set out in their founding grant, to qualify its students for personal success and direct usefulness in life, and to promote the public welfare by exercising an influence in behalf of humanity and civilization. It's a matter of debate how the idea for the university first came to Leland. Maud Lord Drake, the medium who led seances for the Stanfords, later claimed that she gave the Stanfords the idea but Leland swore it came to him in a dream. 
Perhaps it was this inclination to separate themselves from spiritualism that led the Stanfords to search for a man of science to preside over their school. Their first choice, Andrew White, then president of Cornell University, was unavailable. White did, however, have a suggestion, Dr. David Starr Jordan. On paper, Dr. Jordan had quite a similar background to the Stanfords. He grew up in a strict farming family in New York and took schooling quite seriously. The Stanfords and Dr. Jordan agreed on many core ideals, namely the equal importance of liberal arts and science. Over the years, though, Dr. Jordan would skew towards the latter, perhaps even dangerously so. At a time when many educational institutions were run by the clergy, Jordan was somewhat of an unorthodox choice. He had no religious background. He was an ichthyologist by trade, specializing in the study of marine biology. He also came from the country. When the Stanfords approached him with a job offer in 1891, he was working at Indiana University. I'm just not so sure, Mr. Stanford. What's there to not be sure about? Dr. Jordan, if I may, we're perfect for each other. You're looking for an opportunity to make a legacy. We can be that legacy. We have the opportunity to create a university that is a democracy of men. The work, not the degree, would be the goal of effort. A university where men and women alike will be accepted. How could you possibly say no to- Yes. Yes, okay. But moving from Indiana to California sounds so expensive. Oh, Dr. Jordan, you don't need to worry about that. When the Stanfords showed Dr. Jordan his prospective salary, he was on the next train to California. It was three times what he was making at the University of Indiana. After being appointed, Dr. Jordan frantically began to fill out the rest of the university's staff. He chose mostly from his peers to comprise the faculty, but the Stanfords didn't know that Dr. Jordan wasn't just hiring friends, he was recruiting allies. That would only become clear years down the road. Stanford opened to the world on October 1st, 1891. The school the Stanfords had worked so hard to create had finally seen its first students. The first couple of years were a massive success. The university quickly established itself as one of the most prestigious institutions in the country. By 1893, the Stanford name stood for more than railroads and politics. It represented a way of thinking, a training ground for leaders. To the public, the face of this success was Jane. As a matter of fact, it was only Jane. Leland Stanford was notably absent once Stanford University became active. Over the course of a few years, his personal health had severely declined due to an ongoing battle with locomotor ataxia, a condition that leaves its victims unable to control their body. On June 21, 1893, at the age of 69, Leland Stanford passed away. By this point in Jane's life, she had experienced more than her fair share of tragedy. Her husband's death wasn't exactly a surprise. He was 69 years old and had been struggling with health issues. 
but it was still a massive loss. Jane Stanford coped by throwing herself into her work. Now the sole trustee of the university, she became a regular face on campus. Her attention to the liberal arts and equality made her especially popular among the student body. But it was these exact traits that began to rub the faculty the wrong way. After Leland's death, Jane started butting heads more and more with David Starr Jordan. Certain aspects of Jane Stanford's beliefs offended Dr. Jordan. Her history with spiritualism offended Dr. Jordan's rigid scientific practices. Jane was also a forward thinker in racial integration and had profited from the hiring of Chinese immigrants on her husband's railway, but Dr. Jordan didn't agree. Some years later, an uglier side of David Starr Jordan revealed itself. He used the excuse of science to become involved in eugenics, the practice of selective human breeding that would later become a popular ideal of the Nazis. In 1901, Dr. Jordan wrote a series of essays titled The Blood of the Nation, a study of the decay of races through the survival of the unfit. In the essays, he writes about the need for racial segregation and cleansing in America. This attitude put him directly at odds with the widow Stanford. Their working relationship began to tear at the seams. Alliances were made. Lines were clearly drawn down the middle of the Stanford staff between those who supported Jane and those who followed Dr. Jordan. The next few years erupted into a game of faculty politics that eventually turned deadly. Coming up, we'll look at the war over Stanford University that would end in Jane's death. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. And now... Back to our story. In 1900, the war for the soul of Stanford University erupted. On one side was 72-year-old Jane Stanford, the sole trustee of the university. On the other was Dr. David Starr Jordan, president of the university, fiercely backed by most of the Stanford faculty, a group he curated himself. Jane Stanford made the first move. 
Stanford University was home to many esteemed professors at that time, chief among them an American sociologist named Edward Ross, who reportedly held anti-Asian views and, to make matters more complicated for Jane and her fortune, was against the use of Chinese workers to build railroads. Ross may have been Dr. Jordan's star hire and respected by his colleagues, but Jane decided he had to go. I demand he be fired at once. I'm sorry, Mrs. Stanford, but I fail to see how the hiring practices at this school fall under your jurisdiction. Everything that goes on here is my jurisdiction. I know what's best for this school. Is that a conclusion you came to on your own? Or did a ghost tell you that as well? You didn't just disrespect me, Dr. Jordan. You spit on the graves of my husband and my child. Using her power as sole trustee, Jane fired Edward Ross. The decision was very unpopular among the staff. Dr. Jordan and his supporters were quick to retaliate. Actively denouncing the firing, many of Stanford's faculty walked out in protest. This put Jane Stanford in a precarious position. She didn't want to hire back the professor, but she didn't want to completely lose control of the situation either. Jane was backed into a corner. In order to fight another day and keep Stanford University open, she had to relinquish some of her control. She formed a board of trustees to help oversee decisions. She did not give up all of her power, though. She named herself the first president of the board. The board of trustees became the new battleground between Jane and Dr. Jordan. Each member had their loyalties, each player their own tricks and schemes. The rules of this game were simple. Spies were mandatory, lies were encouraged, and above all else, take the other one down. Soon though, the rules would change. On January 14, 1905, the stakes of the game turned deadly. I can't keep doing this every day. Bertha! Yes, Mrs. Stanford? I need you to contact the Board of Trustees. I think we should start a new philosophy program that's based around the possibilities of our own spirituality. And I also think that... (coughs) Water? Yes, please. Thank you. Oh, God! That bottle of water is... (coughs) What's wrong, Mrs. Stanford? It's bitter. Something is wrong. Uh... Mrs. Stanford! Bertha, try this water. Just a sip. Oh, it doesn't taste right at all. I think... I think I've been poisoned. Jane's quick thinking saved her life. She ran to the bathroom and forced herself to throw up. A toxicology report performed by a local pharmacy would soon confirm what Jane thought. Her water was laced with strychnine. If she had finished her glass, she would be dead. Jane tried to track down her poisoner, but her attempts were futile. No one could trace where the bottled Poland spring water had come from. 
The failed assassination attempt would keep Jane awake at night. It was clear someone was trying to murder her. And they didn't stop trying. As the cold chill of winter blanketed the city of fog, and every corner and mysterious shadow spelled danger for Mrs. Stanford, it became clear there was only one course of action for the widowed woman. Vacation. On February 15, 1905, Jane Stanford set sail to Hawaii for some much-needed R&R. Hawaii wasn't exactly the vacation hotspot that it is today. At that time, the conglomerate of Pacific Islands wasn't even a state. Hawaii was just a U.S. territory, and tourism there was in its early years. At first, the Hawaiian vacation at the Moana Hotel was exactly what the doctor ordered. Sunny days and plentiful meals kept Jane's mind off the grief and toil of Stanford University. Little did she know the same danger she had run from waited for her on the island. February 28, 1905 started like any other day at the Holiday Resort, but after a wonderful meal of cucumber sandwiches, Jane began to have stomach discomfort that lasted for hours. Before bed, she asked Bertha for bicarbonate of soda, a digestive drink to help settle her stomach, but the medicine did exactly the opposite. Shortly after taking the bicarbonate at just past 11 p.m., Jane Stanford was writhing on the floor, screaming loud enough for the entire hotel to hear. I think I've been poisoned again! Convulsing horribly, Jane pulled at the sheets and clawed at her stomach. Bertha called Dr. Francis Howard Humphreys, who came quickly. Jane flung herself to the ground as Bertha and Dr. Humphreys looked on, powerless. Her last words were haunting. By 11.30 p.m., Jane Stanford, founder of Stanford University, wife of Leland and mother of Leland Jr., died in her Hawaiian hotel room. Her cause of death was clear to the physician on site, Dr. Humphreys. Jane had been poisoned. The coroner's report confirmed that belief. The Hawaiian doctors who performed the autopsy all agreed. Jane Lathrop Stanford had died from strychnine poisoning. Someone had slipped it into her drink again. But what should have been taken as fact was quickly dismissed as lies. After hearing what happened, David Starr Jordan went to Hawaii. As soon as he arrived, he found a doctor of his own, Ernest Coniston Waterhouse. Excuse me for the mess. Uh, We don't usually get such esteemed guests this far into the island. I'm not exactly here for pleasantries. Well, uh, what are you here for? I'm sure you've heard about the unfortunate incident with Jane Stanford, right? It's all over the news. Murder, was it? See, I'm not so sure. If Jane Stanford was murdered, that would be some awfully bad press for Stanford University. Might even make us shut our doors to new students next year, collapse the whole school. I was hoping you might be open to giving me a second opinion. Excuse me, but being a doctor comes with certain responsibilities to the truth, and... I'll happily pay you for your time, of course. Come to think of it, there were quite a few suspicious aspects of that coroner's report. As the police began their investigation, 
David Starr Jordan made a surprise announcement to the press. I know how your tabloids work. Drama sells and the truth is secondary. So I'm sure this comes as disappointing news to gossips around the world. After conversing with the good doctor Ernest Coniston Waterhouse, we have come to the conclusion that Jane Stanford was not murdered. She wasn't even poisoned. Jane Stanford died of heart failure, a completely natural cause for a woman of her age. It didn't take long before Dr. Jordan was able to use his influence to convince police in California to shut down their case. There was never an official investigation into Jane Stanford's murder. But her death was a loose thread that slowly unraveled some of the most untouchable elite corners of American society. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with our second episode on the mysterious death and cover-up of Jane Stanford. For more information on Jane, amongst the many sources we used, we found the mysterious death of Jane Stanford by Robert W.P. Cutler extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll look at who might have wanted Jane Stanford dead and how they possibly murdered her from thousands of miles away. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Frank Spiro with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, KJ Tang, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. Be sure to follow Incredible Feats for your daily dose of offbeat entertainment. Join comedian Dan Cummins every weekday as he shares unbelievable and true stories of physical strength, mental focus, and genuine bizarre behavior. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 